This is Bill Van Vagel from Phantom Galaxy Podcast here, inviting you all to have your senses challenged and your mind engaged. In a new podcast, Strange Frequencies, we discuss thought-provoking songs and mind-bending movies. That's Strange Frequencies, a Phantom Galaxy podcast, where the needle drops and the story begins. Welcome to Phantom Galaxy Podcast, the crossroads where fantasy, science fiction, and horror meet. Usually this is my co-host Nathan Bartlebaugh, but I'm opening up Bill Van Vagel. Nathan, what do you think of today's episode? I'm super excited for today's episode because, as you just pointed out, you are the host and I am not. And I'm just going to sit here. No, I'm just kidding. That's excellent. Uh, but you know what? You still have to edit. No, 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 That's very true. That is very true. In fact, I'm not even not even the primary other co-host this ep- this episode either. Uh, and and this this entire show, which is still Fan of Galaxy, uh, it's going to be another one of our sort of mini shows within a show. Like we have the Illustrated Fan with Dave Becker. And Bill, you have a title for this this show too. And why don't you tell everybody a little bit of what it's about, and then introduce our co-host strange frequencies and it's a concept that i kind of threw at nathan oh about six months ago and we were talking about it and we thought this is a offshoot of phantom galaxy where we discuss music and songs and albums and concept albums that basically tell a story and where possible we kind of fit it within the genre of sci-fi fantasy and science fiction, but it doesn't necessarily have to go that way. It could be something we find interesting lyrically, could be something we find interesting musically, and something that we, quite frankly, just want to talk about. But we're not going to just choose whatever is poppy. We're going to choose ones that we think tell a good story. So it could be from a traditional songwriter like a Jim Croce, a Gordon Lightfoot, or a Johnny Cash, to the more progressive rock albums that are filled with musical stories and long-told tales, or it could be a heavy metal album that has percussions and drums and guitar that drive a beat, that drive the song to tell a story. So we're really open to listener suggestions. So one of the things that we really want to encourage is if you have an idea of a song or an album or a band that does conceptually a lot of different interesting storytelling, please let us know. Email us, put it on the page. We will always be looking into that. And having said that, I was thinking when we're on this show, along with Nathan, why not have ourselves a wonderful guest every time, or at least most of the time? And I couldn't think of anybody better than the wonderful David Waugh, who has his own podcast, The Great Freight North, that's on every now and again whenever he decides and gets out of his schedule (laughs) to do it. But it is a wonderful podcast about horror with a little bit of a focus on the Canadian angle, but not necessarily. It can be about anything that comes to his mind. So, Dave, welcome, and what can the world know about you? Oh, man, thanks for the introduction. I'm blushing out here. And uh, before I had a podcast, and which is one of the reasons I'm so glad to be here tonight on a microphone talking about music, I used to mess around on the radio because, man, I love music, and I am so glad to be here on Phantom Galaxy talking about music. Tonight, we're going to be blowing the dust off the fat stacks of wax at the backs of the racks to bring you the best funky hot tracks. 
I can't get. I can't get that out. On that one. <laughs> I haven't said that in so long. I had to get that out. I used to open my show like that. But yeah, no. Thanks for having me, guys. This is going to be so much fun. Uh, literally, with between the ba- like you've got me on as a guest, Bill here, and between the band that we're talking about, Nathan, you can uh, smell the maple syrup coming out of the speakers. We're going to be talking about a great Canadian band called Rush tonight. Yes, and it's interesting because I'll get into the album. An album that holds universal appeal, and the album came out in 1976. So it is 45 years going on, and it still is as strong today as it was before. But one of the reasons we chose it is not only the universal appeal, but musically it's strong, lyrically it's strong, it could be made into a movie easily. It's been made into graphic novels. The poster is iconic. The album cover is iconic. The voice and the sound has a feeling to itself unlike any other album that I know of. And so before we crack into the album, does anybody here have anything they want to say about previous knowledge or experience with the band Rush themselves? Nathan, why don't we start with you? Until recently, when you had... He would pitch the idea about doing the the podcast. He said, "How about you know twenty one twelve the the Rush song?" And I was, and then you know we're, you were also talking about the album, and I was thinking to myself, "I don't think I'm familiar with this." And so while I knew a reasonable you know handful of their their songs, and I probably what I had was you know somewhere along the line I probably had one of the like greatest hits or something like that, and it was probably even then it probably wasn't like all the songs. It was probably something I picked up at like a uh, uh, like a, a gas station bin or something like that. Uh, so when I came across this, or when you brought it to my attention, listening to this, I was kind of blown away by it. it. You know, it has a lot in common with a lot of Rush's other music, but in some ways it doesn't. It does feel very, very uh, science fiction heavy. It does feel almost like you close your eyes, and you can just kind of envision a lot of this. It takes a while for it to really kind of ramp up into that moment where you're thinking, hey, this is like, this is like the rush I'm familiar with, but it goes through so many different sort of currents that it's 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 epic, right? It really is, and it's uh it's epic in a way that I don't think not that not that their other stuff isn't, but they really kind of go for it here. Um, and I thought it was very cool because it wasn't it didn't feel exactly like uh, anything else they had done up to that point. And I'm going to get into the story behind the making of it in a little bit. Dave, why don't you interject your background knowledge of the band or the album or any other thoughts before you actually had the chance to dig in very recently? Yeah, so uh, basically I was familiar, like I said, with their greatest hits. I mean, I I am uh, a child of the 80s. You couldn't go into an arcade without hearing Tom Sawyer or YYZ, and that is how you pronounce it. There is no such letter as Z. It's YYZ. Uh, but about 20, 20 uh, sorry, 2112, this was also a first listen for me. And man, thank you for introducing me to this song. The first listen blew me away. I friggin' love this. I've like, I had it, I, 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 <laughs> I had it on in the car three times in a row and my wife had to slap me to get it to stop. You know what I mean? <laughs> and it, it is funny how I had really never heard of it. Uh, I asked a bunch of my friends who, who are a big bass player, well, they, they're into the bass. They love Rush. They knew this song right away. They were kind of disappointed that I didn't know about it. But it does tell a great, wonderful, big uh, science fiction story. And it, it's crazy how 
it rocks. The song rocks, but it is totally nerd. Like the song is full of nerddom. And at the same time, it is all the Ayatollah of rock and roll. Like it is, it is hard rock. I, I, I love it. Let's get into it. Let's get right into it. Let's dig in. Let's do something Canadian and politely open up the cover because this is one of those albums. I am literally sitting here, ladies and gentlemen, with the LP blowing off the dust, opening it up. And it's it's something to behold to open, opening up an album and seeing the lyrics in front of you and opening up the sleeve and feeling the vinyl. Today's kids with streaming, they just won't get that feeling of what it was like. And if I can uh, just chirp in here if you actually have the vinyl which is what i'm still looking for i'll I'll probably end up buying it new but you've got uh liner notes that you don't get on the cd and you obviously don't get on spotify which really helped to flesh out this story you can you can understand what's going on just listening to rush tell you what the story is but if you have the liner notes it really broadens it up really opens it up and and just before you get any further i just wanted to mention i've put a few notes down here so this song it's three musicians, 20 minutes, 33 seconds, mostly 4-4 four, four timing. They drop down to 2-4 time sometime. I, I counted nine transitions. This is this is a big chunk of music, people. It's filled with magic and hairy-chested rock and roll. And and the But the other reason I fit this one as first, I choose this one as first, was because not only is it musically wonderful and it tells a great story, it honestly, and Nathan will attest to this, it's a science fiction story. It's a, you, you, you could call it utopian, you could call it dystopian, you could call this a good against evil, you've got your enemies, you've got someone fighting for the cause, you've got a tragic ending. This would make a brilliant, I think, almost adult cartoon type movie, because I think it would actually do better than that, than as a live action film. It, it totally feels like yeah. uh, something out of... Do you guys remember Heavy Metal Magazine? Yep. Yes. And yeah. I was just thinking about that. And even Heavy Metal, the movie from totally, the 80s. Totally, totally. Yep, yep. I mean, it actually, like... I don't. Uh, I mean, uh, maybe a stretch, but do you... Is there some The Matrix or Metropolis THX in here too, you know? Well, yeah. And for sure, I think that there is. Uh, the, the Matrix is kind of actually what I was thinking as you're like listening to it. And what's what's really cool though is the way that they weave in the music element. You know, the man finds a, a guitar. Like, hell, oh, it would be such a great film. It really would. Yeah, it really would be. And for those that are listening, we haven't forgotten about our movie roots because we will be reviewing the movie Devil's Candy afterwards. So if you totally don't like music at all, but you still like horror movies and fantasy movies, we will be doing it afterwards. And we thought it was a nice tie-in. But we thought we'd start with 2112. Dave, is there any other notes that you took before we jump into it that you wanted to express about the album? Uh, no, they'll kind of just come uh, as we go through the song. Okay, Nathan, is there anything you wanted to mention before we kind of jump in? Only that I thought it was interesting on the album, uh, they mentioned that Neil Peart credits the genius of Ayn Rand, you know, and yep. anyone knows Rand, I'm not actually a big Ayn Rand fan. And I thought that was interesting because of what kind of plays out through the, what's going on in this kind of epic. It's, it's halfway between, like you said, it's halfway between dystopian. And even though, you know, a lot of it is kind of uh, based in this one world, there is this kind of cosmic fling to it. So it has a, it has a space opera kind of tone. And honestly, the story that they're telling through this album is way better than anything that Anne Rand 
wrote, in my opinion. Oh, I, that's um, not a big reader. So I, I have heard of her, but I, I was curious. Interesting to hear that. Yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm opening up the liner notes and side one before it says lyrics by Neil Peart with acknowledgement to the genius of Ayn Rand. So he acknowledged it right before the first portion of the song. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with 2112, it was an album that came out in 1976. Now, there's some dispute as to when it actually came out. Most people acknowledge it to be the 1st of April, 76, but those on the inside believe it was probably March of 76. I mean, now we're getting nerdy. We don't need to get that far. But Rush itself is a band that, I'll give you a straight up front, my all-time favorite band. They are musically very, very strong. Love them or hate them, you cannot deny their musical abilities. Oh, geniuses. They are at the top notch. They're that 1% of 1% musically. Yeah. They yeah. Are- if, if, if people, uh, if you're into the drums or the bass, uh, you know, Neil Peart and Getty Lee's names, you know them. There's, there's Getty Lee. And Les Claypool on the bass, and you know, Neil Peart and and John Bonham on the drums, or, or Keith Moon. I mean, those are those yeah. names go together. Yeah, you, you could you could put Bonham, you could talk Keith Moon, you could talk Ginger Baker, and you could talk Neil Peart and Buddy Rich and the like. They were founded in '68, and '68, uh, Alex Lifeson, the guitarist, and Geddy Lee, the bassist slash singer slash keyboardist slash 17 other things that he does at once. He, they started with a drummer called John Rutsey. And John Rutsey was a high school friend of theirs. They got to a certain level in Ontario, as I'm sure it is in a lot of states. You know, you played the high schools, you played the bar mitzvahs, you played the churches. You know, you had to make your way that way. Because at least in Ontario, the drinking age was so high that they couldn't even play in the bars. And then it came to a certain point where they, you know, their music was able to be played everywhere. After their first album, their drummer, John Rutsey, was diabetic. And as as told by the story, he wasn't made for the road. He was, he was into drinking and all the likes that go on with that, the women, the partying, the excitement. But as a man who's who was heavily diabetic, it just didn't go well with him. So they made the decision to exclude him from the band. They held auditions. In come this tall, gangly guy whose parents owned a farm implement store. His name was Neil Peart. Blew them away and started to take over the songwriting because Rutsey was there for the first one. And the first album, I loved the album, but it was more of a bad company-ish, you know, a hardened rock. You know, Led Zeppelin light, as many would say. And then Neil Peart took over the songwriting. And he did that with the Fly By Night album. And with that one, it was a lot of rocker stuff. But he also started to get into the conceptual songs. Bytor and the Snow Dog was their first concept song off Fly By Night. And he kind of got some hints. After that, they had the album Caress of Steel. And Caress of Steel, for those who have never heard it, I enjoy the album, but it is not for everybody. It gets into songs called The Necromancer that was highly influenced by J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit and The Fountain of Lamneth, which was a six-part tale. Neil was also very strongly influenced by sci-fi writer Samuel R. Delaney, 
He had all these concepts, and we talked about Anne Rind. After Caress of Steel, that album bombed. They called their tour for that the Down the Tubes tour because they were end up playing with Kiss, and then they go to Ted Nugent, and they'd be playing with UFO, and they'd be you know with Uriah Heep in the middle of the Midwest of the United States. They weren't where they wanted to be. The record company was ready to drop them. And their manager, Ray Daniels, went back to the record company and said, give us one more chance. He was able to finagle one more album's worth. The record company, Mercury Records at the time, wanted a commercial album. They wanted stuff to play in the top 40 stations, a three-minute ditty that will get lots of airplay. Rush (laughs) said, you know what? Screw that. We've got one album or we're back working at the factory. We're going to play the music we want. And it went to the point where Ray Daniels, their manager, they wouldn't even record in front of them until it was finished because they didn't want him to hear it and deter them from making this album. And it's, to me, their magnus opus. I absolutely love the album. It's an album that if I'm feeling sad, it pumps me up. If I'm feeling lethargic, it gets me going. And if I'm feeling good, it makes me feel even better. It has that kind of feel to it. So at this point, I'll ask Nathan and then Dave, how did you feel about the music or the album the first time you heard it? It was transporting in a word. I mean, I know that's kind of flaky or, or, or simple uh, like to say, but it is it is transporting. They spend so much time. They spend so much time at the start of the piece of music just developing this this tone and this feel i mean you feel almost like you're getting ready to fly through the stargate right you know like in 2001 or something like that and then it takes on this whole other tone i kept i liked the shifts and we were sitting listening to this with my kids and my daughter who was listening to it and you get that feeling it's not surprising that you mentioned some of those earlier songs that had the very tolkien and more like the high fantasy feel you know sort of mythological that's here, but there's definitely like another level to it. And so I, emotionally, I think you get, you go on that journey, you get that feeling of that like epic quest. And early on, you even get that feeling of sort of the, that downtrodden aspect of the society where this particular group, I'm sure you'll kind of get into that. You have these people who are sort of at the ruling level, and then you had, you bring forth, you know, the one who's potentially going to change it all. And you can hear all that, even if you aren't picking up the lyrics you get the tone and the energy of all of that you get the suppression you get the kind of rise you get the triumph you get this sort of uh struggle back and forth you can kind of hear all that because my daughter really wasn't hearing all of the lyrics or getting everything there but she was getting the kind of energy of what was happening i think that's what's so impressive about this is you can kind of let it flow over you without even really uh, hinging on the lyrics to begin with and you still get the basic shape of what's happening absolutely dave what did you what did you think and and this is fresh in your memory what was it like two weeks ago or a month ago the first time you heard it oh it it was it was really awesome like this song pumps you up so hard it's all big like getty lee's vocals are huge in your face loud there's like victory chorus you know there's that that, that the way the the beat triples like it's it this song i don't listen to the lyrics usually to a, a piece of music the first time i just want the music to grab me and it does this this really grabs you 
and takes you on that trip. That's, maybe that's a good word. It's, this song is a trip. You can feel it. There, there's anger and emotion in it. You pick up on it through the music right away. And then as soon as it's over, I had to start it right again. I had to start it over again and listen to it a second time. I, I didn't even get... I didn't, you can forget about side two. I haven't even got to it yet, barely. This this song begs for repeated listening, and it's it's got it's got ideas in it. You can feel it before you even start breaking down what they're talking about. And for those for those of you, twenty one twelve was twenty minutes and thirty three seconds. It was the entire side one. Now side yeah. two is side two is a great side two if you've never heard it. it. Particularly for genre fans, there's a song called the Twilight Zone, which uses two episodes from the original series as the lyrical base to the song. So it's, it's so cool it's, too. <laughs> it's, it, it's a great one. Cause he talks about taking his hat off and he sees the eye come out. Like it's a really good song. So, I mean, it, I mean, there's a typical of the time, a passage to Bangkok is a drug song. Uh, lessons oh, yeah, in it is. <laughs> oh, oh, absolutely. Talks about Afghanistan, the smell of Afghanistan. And then lessons and tears were two, the only two songs that Getty and Alex wrote and, as they will say afterwards, they didn't write any more in again. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's a fantastic album to listen to. It's my favorite all-time album, bar none. But the one, the other thing before we get into it is the musicianship of the uh, of the performers. Alex, I think, is the most underrated guitarist out there in terms of be. Oh, not that he's not good. I think he is absolutely fantastic, but he gets overshadowed by. Neil and Getty, because Getty's a maestro with the bass, the keyboard, and all the drum pedals that he uses. I mean, you see that meme out there. Oh, you so you're so somebody can sing and play the guitar. Ha! And he's got like every hand is taking care of something, and he's belting out this song. And Neil Peart, the professor of the drum kit, is. You watch some of his solos on YouTube, or I have all the DVDs. Absolutely phenomenal. And they're crashers and bangers, but they also are proggy. They also have the keyboard sound. They also are melodic. They also are deeper than your average. It's actually a great band to listen to if you were like me in high school. I didn't have a ton of friends, and the friends I had, we weren't out partying. We were, now I wouldn't say we were uh, recluse. But this was the kind of band because Limelight, one of their songs, Limelight, has a, a line that says, you can't pretend a stranger is a long-awaited friend. Well, that really summarizes a Rush fan because you don't necessarily want that extra friend. You just want it in your space. So it really appealed to a lot of people. But it wasn't always cool to be a Rush fan. It, it still isn't always all that cool to be a Rush fan. But I will say it here and there, I'm a Rush fan, and damn it, I am. So <laughs> let's get into the album. So per perhaps, Dave, yep. what did you think of the first part? Now, this is six parts. The first one is Overture. Seven. Or sorry, seven, or seven parts. Yeah, seven. 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 What is your thought of Overture? Uh, well, b because it starts everything off, you know, I, I like it a lot. Uh, and, it, and it is... <laughs> In case you're wondering, or you know, just to make sure that you get that it's the overture, there's a, a point in it where Alex kind of taps out the 1812 overture clumsily on the guitar, and then there's an explosion, just like in the overture, in, in the be in your basement. You drop that needle down, and you get that weird 
cacophony of synthesizer sounds like a mm -hmm. some sort of sci-fi engine starting up and then the, you know the guitars kick in oh the overture is great uh i'll tell you the, there's a part um it's about 305 or 310 in it's one of the first transitions it's a real fuck yeah moment uh alex kicks in with with this amazing clean crisp gibson guitar solo there's no distortion on it it's like bends the strings so far for these long chords uh if you're listening if you're listening along yeah th about 305 in there it it's when the song really picks up it it's like bow, bow. it's just these long guitar pulls it's awesome yeah i was gonna say nathan is there anything you want to say about the overture or maybe how yours how your kids reacted to the overture well it's much like Dave kind of alludes to, you're kind of sitting there, and cacophony is a good word at the, at the start. There's a lot of this kind of noise and sound going on, and they're familiar with some of that sort of thing in in music. But it's building, and it's building, and it's building. And then I think, because I didn't really tell them, like, hey, this is what you're listening to, they didn't know that the guitars were coming. So it was sort of like they're trying to figure out, Dad, what are you doing? Like... What is this? Are we going to... Because I've had them listen to ambient music that literally just drones on for 45 minutes, you know, without <laughs> with no real destination in, in mind, except you're staring yourself through the wall. And so when that kicks in, that's kind of when the shape and form, it's almost like the, the world being born, right? Like you said, the engine... Oh, I like that. And you have it happening. And then the minute that that guitar enters, that's when, like, you get the kind of... Uh, it, it, it coalesces right it comes together and then in your head or wherever you know that's when the story sort of emerges or begins to emerge and i imagine we were talking about it being like heavy metal you imagine that at this point uh this is when the sort of light is coming up and you're seeing the shadows of those buildings or the the outline structures of this world and so that when that happens that's when they were sort of like okay now i get this like now i'm grounded now i'm ready to rock <laughs> and uh, then you go on the quest. Then you, then you, you, the world has appeared, and you're ready to go. Yeah, because the album itself has a lot of overarching themes. And I was watching the classic albums that's available on Prime on Twenty One Twelve and uh, Moving Pictures. And the, the one of the members of the Bare Naked Ladies band said the theme of it is creative freedom and believing in yourself, the loss of individuality, and that's really what the seven piece segmented song is about people overcoming oppression and using individuality and not having to conform to what the elders say they should. And I like the overture because it kind of starts out with this futuristic and you're thinking you're going to be watching a science fiction movie. And then all of a sudden the crash and bang begins and you know, you're on a journey. You're not sure where you don't know what's coming. But strap on in because you know you want to hear the rest of it. And that's kind of, it's kind of just the lead into the temples of Syrinx, which I find interesting in that it opens with a Bible quote of the meek shall inherit the earth. And it kind of takes it from there. I, I don't know. I, I That section, that section of it, I got a sense of the tightness of the band. It's so strong musically. And Neil's drums were syncing with the guitar and bass just wonderfully. You can really hear Neil's beat strongly in this section of it. And uh, Nathan, did you have anything to put in for the Temples of Syrinx? No, except that that's where you get the the concept, right? Where you so the Temples of Syrinx is where these 
these controllers, these puppet masters, uh, the priests, really. What's interesting about that segment is you, you're you getting, this is where you are getting uh, the kind of oppression element, right? You're getting that uh, the galactic empire <laughs> kind of feel to it. You don't have a, you don't have an imperial march or anything like that, but you have, uh, you have this sense, a sense of that. I thought that was really cool. I thought this is where you're, you're in, you're in pretty much clear rock territory at this point, and it's not as sci-fi as the early stuff. But you're—that's when you're kind of understanding. Oh, this is a story. There is there's stakes here. There's there's going to be uh, antagonists and protagonists and all that kind of thing. Because lyrically it gets into things about uh, brotherhood of man and a nice contented world. Let banners be unfurled. Hold the red star proudly high in hand. And you're like, Ooh, what does this red star mean? What does right. this mean? All... So you don't have the empire here. You have the solar federation. The solar which, federation. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Dave, what are your thoughts on this section? Oh, this section rocks so hard. I, I can't decide if temp- temples of Syrinx or... Uh, presentation is my favorite section but man the i love getty lee's like angst panic screaming vocals in this part (laughs) Uh, and it it makes it really does introduce the villains and they're scary because so the first section your overture you know okay okay we're going along we're going along and then we are the priests he just goes (laughs) off with his vocals and it's oh my god these priests are scary these guys whoo don't mess with these guys it it um, it's, it's also, oh man, uh, cause I watched that documentary too. And they showed some of this live uh, as, uh, as older oh, the, musicians, the, uh, oh, oh, the, the, the 76 version in New Jersey. No, no it was, uh, when he's got that total eighties mullet, but, oh. but what, what, what I noticed mostly is that man, this, uh, section must be sung by a young person. His, his vocals are a little off when he gets older and there's no way I could get this high. It's, it's like Robert plant high. It's, it's awesome. Well, it's funny. There's a story on one of their DVDs of when they first opened up for kiss and, um, Gene Simmons is like, and out comes this Canadian band and he's singing higher than he could even, even imagine. He did. Oh yeah. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's great. You know? So yeah. And, I've uh, full uh, openness. I've probably heard this album close to a thousand times. Oh yeah, I've heard this album. And when Getty wails in temples, the hair on my back, my neck still stands up. That was the moment when my daughter went from that kind of like casually listening, like playing around in the middle of the room, to like turns and looks at me and makes eye contact, like what? (laughs) What is this? It really formed an image in my mind. Like I don't know if it's because you guys had just been talking about Flash Gordon, but to me, the priests are like a mix of uh, Ming the Merciless and uh, the the guys from Dark City. You know, and yes. it's it's definitely yes. Richard O'Brien singing. We are the priests. I just I can't get enough. The hair on my arm is standing up now. Just can can you see through the microphone? Yeah, yeah, totally. Absolutely, yeah. I can feel your fur. I yeah. <laughs> so from the temples of Syrinx, where we're introduced to this, you know, these leaders, these priests, these people that are kind of squelching the creativity of those, we get into discovery. 
And I really like it because it's a really calm introduction. And the main character, and by the way, they never say the name of the narrator. He's just the main character. He's the com- one. He's well, the one. What's what's the most Canadian name? Like it, it, like Dave. Dave. Well, I was gonna say I was gonna say Gord, but okay. Gord. Okay. <laughs> it's Gord. Gord. It's Gord Downey. Gord Downey. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Gord or yeah. Gord and Gordy Lightfoot too. Eh? Oh, true. Yeah. 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 So, it, but it introduces it in a. It's really calm. It's serene. The main character finds this guitar back in a cave and he dusts it off and he blows it. And then he starts tuning the guitar, but it's played musically. He's tuning it. It's out of tune, but it's still in rhythm and in beat. And it's slow and it's slow. It's really building. cool, by the way. That part is really cool. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's so cheesy and cool because it really, really does illustrate the story. Like you get the whole... The, the whole progression of it. Yeah, oh, I found this thing, and I'm bing, 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 what's this? Oh, it makes oh, it makes noises, and they get better, and they become more in tune, and then it, it becomes rock and roll, man. He's got this light bulb moment of, holy crap, this thing can make sound. I can actually not have to listen to the hymns of the priests all day. I can actually do something now. And, and, and the vocals are so different from the last section. He, Getty was, was screaming through the temples of Syrinx, and here he's quiet and humble and discovering and uh inquisitive you know it, it's it's awesome see how it seems like a sad heart and joyously screams out its pain sounds that build high like a mountain on notes that fall gently like rain yeah, this is the part where my wife starts paying attention because she's that's more her style of 70s music, you know, the more kind of lighter, like rock, if you will. And so she wasn't as into the early ones. And she's like, oh, wait. And I was like, it's the same song. <laughs> we're still we're still in the same, <laughs> it, it, same it's, world it's, here. It's very much like that band Bread, that, like that kind of feel to it. One of her favorite bands is Bread. So. Oh, is it? I had <laughs> yes. no idea. Yes, exactly. And so here's this character, this main character. You know, he's like, oh my gosh, I found this guitar. Let's present it to the priests. Hence the next one, presentation. Where the character presents it to the priest, Father Brown, who uh, uh, by all accounts is the leader of the priests, who ultimately rejects the instrument. And he crushes the guitar to splinters in his, under his boot. Just crushes the darn thing. He pleads for the introduction and use of the guitar. Listen to my music and hear what it can do. The priests say, don't annoy us further. We have our work to do. Just think about the average. What use have they for you? Absolutely important part to the song because it's gone from this upbeat, melancholy tune to... My heart has just been crushed. So we get into uh, the concepts of censorship, freedom of expression, communism. It's hard-edged, but then it gets a slow beat to it. It transitions a few different times. But whenever the priests speak, the music becomes heavy and menacing. And then when the character starts to talk, it slows itself down. Oh, yeah, you took that out right out of my mouth. It's That's great how they do that.
but it's an interesting uh nathan did you have anything about this part neil we we talked about the quote where he told called the genius of ann rand and then of course he, he mentioned how in that particular interview they are talking about it years later because everyone sort of started calling him a fascist and everything. And he 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 said, well, we had such a great interview. The guy was so nice and we had a great time with him. But we felt kind of betrayed when he sort of painted it that way. And, and he said I, he was really trying to talk about things philosophically. I think when they ask him, like, well, what is your political affiliation? I think he said, well, I'm a, I'd say I'm a libertarian, but maybe a bleeding heart libertarian. Uh, I bring all that up, though, because this is where you do get a little bit of what Rand called like the objectivism, this philosophical idea. I mean, but really it kind of there's elements of where the, the these these forces want to hold the exceptional down for the sake of the milieu, of the the average, right? And so um, I don't know that I completely agree with where that, in fact, I don't, where that thought process kind of goes. Uh, but it's interesting to see it sort of played here because they it's sort of downplayed in favor, I think, of more what you're getting at, Bill, where, um, and I don't mean to try and suck all the fun out of this rock storyline by, by delving into the social elements, but you you really do get more of the freedom of expression of these forces that want to drain you of your individuality. And I think that comes to the fore more than the sort of political things that Rand was trying to say, which were a little bit different than overcoming the system and trying to establish your own individuality. You know, those are different messages, I think. Uh, and I think that's closer to what ultimately comes through in this, which is why I think it's an improvement on on her ideas, quite honestly. So from that soul-crushing stanza, we get to Oracle the Dream. Oh, wait, wait. And, I wanted to say something. Oh, go right ahead, David. <laughs> I, uh, I also love how, again, Getty using his vocals, you totally get the, it's the presentation. Our hero is, is presenting his discovery of music and the guitar. And every time the priests come back at him, they are louder and angrier and, and his vocals change and the guitar here. This is another, this is, I can't decide if this, this or the second section is my favorite, but these, both these sections have amazing guitar solos and drum solos. Um, even it's not, I mean, Getty's really showing off his vocal range here, but if you listen closely, there are some pretty cool bass parts in this song, this particular section, but there's two, Two two sections, excuse me, sections. No, that is right. Two, two sections. <laughs> you're, you're, you're right. I wanted to uh, point out in this presentation part at uh, ten twenty three. There's a kick ass drum. Uh, they're, they're doing like these little triplets. It's it's friggin' awesome. He's doing it so fast. And then uh, towards uh, uh, the end of the uh, no, it goes to about thirteen. So at about eleven minutes and twenty seconds. He's, he's rolling down the toms again, and it, it's a part where it sounds a lot like like he's playing buckets, but it's... Oh, I love... I feel like he's done that in other songs before with those toms, but he's just lightning fast. Those drums are so aggressive. Man, and, I, can't, I, I, I can't say enough how impressed and blown away by this whole side of this album I am. And I, it's this... This is the section where you almost wonder, you could sing this as a duet... Yeah, with uh, one side being the priest and the other side being the character. Yeah, when when we do it as our stage production, that's what we'll do. When we will, so you'll get your uh, get this to the ear of the drama teacher, will you? Yes, good, absolutely. 
so that's I mean, animation, yeah. guys. Animation. Anim- okay, okay. Oh, yeah, or better puppets. Yeah, <laughs> that's more my speed. <laughs> I can't draw. Well, this would be amazing with like Thunderbird style puppets. Oh yes. Well, see, I'm, 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 I was thinking claymation, wouldn't that? Oh, be cool? that's even better. Oh, stop yeah. motion. Yeah, that would be awesome. You can do that with an iPhone. <laughs> you probably can. So then we get into the presentation, and or sorry, I'm sorry. This is Oracle the Dream, and at this point, I think this is the heaviest in terms of the fantasy element, because this is the one where things become clear yet very murky, where the character wonders was he dreaming did this really happen has he just awoken from a dream it if you interpret it the way i did it's he has a dream where he talks to an oracle who tells him about the works of those who previously had built the guitar but had left long ago so we find out that this guitar has been sitting in this cave purposefully collecting dust for generation upon generation there's a very furious instrumental opening to this and then it becomes dreamlike. I love the transition at that point. Then the character gets upset at what has happened at the music and reflects. In 2112, the elder race of man live on a planet far away from the Federation. He's almost like he doesn't know what to do. He's at this quandary. He's got this dilemma. But how can he change it if the elders are saying that the priests are not going to let this go on what difference can he make i really love this part of the song i wandered home through silent streets and fell into a fitful sleep escaped to realms beyond the night Dave, do you want to jump in on this one? Sure. Uh, this, I, I don't have a ton of notes on this section. I, I uh, other than uh, I seem to have pointed out some, some more beautiful drumming in it. But yeah, the, I, I I took this to be yeah a dream or almost an actual. He, he makes a connection and and somehow sees through time what life was and should have been like uh, before they, you know, I, I assume this society has been oppressed long before Gord was born. So he's, he's lived like this his whole life and, and this beautiful vision or dream that he's shown um, is pulling at his heart. And, and I, it's, there's more sadness to come, but I don't know. I, I, think, I think this is where it starts. Nathan, what, did you have any concept or any interpretation of this section? So we're, so we're calling him Gord, Gord yeah, now. Gord. <laughs> it goes back to a little bit of that ambient feel, you know, it isn't losing the rock element of it, but uh, it is, it, it feels a little more existential. So when you have like the overture and then you have this sequence and then some of the ones are coming up and like you said, Dave, he brings in the sadness and the melancholy. And I don't know, I guess I dig melancholy a lot too, <laughs> but um, I, yeah, it was probably one of my favorite points. I feel this is the point when it's almost kind of becoming the, the center of this 
entire thing in some ways or the turning point, you know, the revelation. Yeah, it's got a, a little bit of nihilistic element to this section of the song. The other thing, though, is it kind of also is where there is interjected any sense of hope because what he sees is the world wasn't always like this. That's true. That's it. There's a bit of a dichotomy there between what could happen and what is happening. So we jump into the soliloquy, which is my favorite section musically. It's also one of the darkest sections of the song. It's damn sad. I mean, my interpretation of it. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. In this section... It starts musically, again, on the slower, kind of downtrodden side. The character awakes from his dream, and he realizes, you know what? I don't want to live in a world without music. I mean, can you not just hear Journey singing this? But it would be a much different song with Journey, right? You know, he doesn't want to live in a world without music, and he can't believe how those who wanted music were treated. And ultimately, he commits suicide. It's got haunting vocals from Getty with the waterfall in the background. Alex's guitar is extremely strong in this section. I love his guitar playing in this. You can hear the, you can hear the despair in the music. Like the lyrics are one thing, but musically you can hear that, oh, something's not going well, and I don't know if it's going to get any better. You can just the, hear it in the guitar play. Lifeson is making that guitar cry. He's, he's, he's just, he must play with really light strings. He's bending the shit out of them. I mean, when he when he utters the lyric, my blood spills over, it's almost as if Getty's crying as he's making that lyric happen. Like, it's it's powerful, but at the same time, you want to see how this darn story ends. What do, anything else? Anything for that, Dave? Oh, you guys are basically saying everything I'm thinking. I mean, this, this is, a, a, to me, a real bummer of a section. Uh, I didn't... Uh, does he kill himself? Okay, I didn't get that from the lyrics. I did get that he died. I thought maybe he starved in that cave or something. I was under the impression that they maybe locked him in the cave, but it, that's not that's neither here nor there. Uh, I also agree there's some real long, stretchy, soulful guitar parts. Uh, and then towards the end, as we're getting, you know, as this section ends, um, the drums again really pick up. And uh, is it just me, or did is there a bit of when the, the the drums are starting to transition into grand finale? Do you hear a bit of of won't get fooled again? There's a little bit of the who in there, which is wh- yeah, I can which see is, that. Which is good because one, there's the rock opera element, but two, Neil was a huge Who fan. Oh, really? okay. His biggest compliment would be to be able to play or be mentioned in the same breath as Keith Moon. So he would have been extremely astounded by that statement. Cool. Well, I'm astounded by him. So so then we get to the grand finale, because just as the soliloquy ends, he no longer wants to live under the Federation's control, and that in dying, he will go on to the next world. And then comes the grand finale, which there are no true lyrics played in this last piece, but it is a boomer. It's a crasher. It almost gets you going. It's like their Rocky piece to the of the album. Like it's... You know, you you feel the adrenaline rush of them overcoming what was just happening. 
the common people have taken over, ultimately overthrown the priests and kind of had it the way they wanted to. And I've heard this played live multiple times, the grand finale. And I heard it live at Blues Fest in Ottawa. And I'm going back about 10 years ago, Ottawa, uh, Ontario, the capital of Canada. And when he's, when Getty belts out, uh, or sorry, this is Alex. Attention all planets of the Solar Federation. We have assumed control. We have assumed control. We have assumed control. Uh, the hairs on my arm just like it's it's phenomenal i mean all geekdom unites stands together and says fuck yeah that's basically what it's doing <laughs> so what did you think of the ending there dave oh this is awesome and i i used the word cacophony too early because it better describes this section when it starts and it's it's it is. I, I feel like they almost repeat some of the themes and 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 musical notes of the other sections to kind of you know we're wrapping it all up. And you're right, there is no no words till the very end there when it gets really creepy. And and uh, again, if you don't have the liner notes, you wouldn't necessarily know. But I mean, you're you're uh, head canon for me. Yeah, the the elder gods or whoever came back and. They heard the power of rock across the galaxy and came back to to save uh, humanity. It's it's just great. There's so much going on in this section. I mean, ultimately, the power of rock and roll prevails. That's the that's, uh, that's, overarching That's the message story. of this. Yeah, if you if you get one thing from this song. Rock and roll can save the world. It's very akin to the Who song "Long Live Rock." Oh yes, it's, it's it's very much like that, and, and there's another Who connection which uh, Neil would be proud of if he was still around. So, I think it's the ultimate yes, f you to the music industry, f you to all those people that are controlling the uh, message. The people will prevail. I thought it was really beautiful how in that documentary. Actually, I had a question about that. So you sent us a, a quick documentary to watch. Why is the documentary titled? the title of a different album, but talking about 2021. But anyways, I did think that was neat how they um, kind of related it to what they're going through in life. Like the, the record labels were trying to tell them, you need to make more radio songs, radio friendly, be like this, be like this. And uh, so, you know, that's the the control being forced on them that they're rebelling against with their rock and roll. It's neat how their life uh, influence their song, which uh, happens all the time, but it, it was it was just neat to see it in that documentary. Yeah, well, I mean, the documentary was Twenty One Twelve and Moving Pictures, which is their two most famous and best selling and popular albums. And oh, that's okay, why they kind of linked them together. Now, there's one little other little clip, a couple little points about it. On the inside cover of the CD, it says, "I lie awake staring at the bleakness of Megadon." So apparently, this the planet is Megadon. I was like. I think the city or the Megadon, Megadon. yeah, yeah the, right. they're, where they're from is Megadon. I didn't know anything about Megadon. It turns out Megadon was an '80s video game that's apparently very, very rare and expensive if you try to buy. I've never been a gamer, so I can't ask say anything to it. But have either of you two ever heard of the game Megadon? I've heard of it. I've never played it. The okay. same here. Um, 
I've never played it, but it was. And then, but when I'm like, yeah, I'm hearing the game Megadon, and I'm like, this is familiar. Is it a game? Is it a Godzilla villain? You know what? Is, is <laughs> I would be curious. I, I didn't look it up, but um, I wonder if the game is influenced by the song at all. I wonder. I wonder. Like, it, it's, it wouldn't be that big a stretch, right? Because there actually is a really good Rush pinball game. And so, like, I know there's all all the gaming, all all is kind of tied together uh, on various levels. So it wouldn't shock me in the least bit. The other part of this album is it was the first use of Starman. If you look inside the cover, there is a naked man standing in front of the pentagram in red. And that logo, designed by Hugh Syme, who designed pretty much all their albums and also played keyboard from time to time with them. And he was the first outside musician to play with them on this album. It became one of their symbols for their tours to come, their albums to come, their banners to come. So one of their most iconic symbols came on this album. But the other thing I like is the ending is a little bit vague, which I think they purposefully did. So it's kind of up to to the interpretation of the listener. Because even within this podcast, Dave and I, or Dave had a different interpretation of the lyrics, which I think, again, Neil would be tickled pink because it led to different interpretations. Same message, but different ways of thinking about the same lyric. You you said a few times, uh, Neil Peart passed away. How old was he? I'm not sure, to be honest. I'm going to say in his early to mid-60s. Yeah, they can't be very... I mean, they don't even look as old as my, my parents. So it was uh, and uh, surprised. They, yeah, they were in high school. They actually dropped out of high school in the late 60s. So if they were, say, yeah, so 18 years be, old, then... Yeah. So they, yeah, they would younger be, than my parents. So that's crazy. Yeah, they would be at least mid-60s, probably closer to 70, but not quite at that age yet. The other irony of uh, Getty and the boys not wanting to be associated with Ayn Rand was Getty's mom and dad were survivors of the Holocaust. Oh, and yep. And she is still alive. He has since passed, but she is still alive and very uh, outgoing. And he wanted, Getty wanted nothing to be associated, saying, like, my mom survived the Nazis. There's no way you can link us to them. Or not to the Nazis, but, you know, of that way of thinking, because fascism, fascism specifically, specifically yeah. yeah, because it, it goes against every principle, every breadth of, breadth of his body. Well, even 45 years ago, people, you know, the general public has a hard time defining the fact that you're discussing ideas not being linked to your ideas hypothetically <laughs> what i'll do now is ask what would you rate this album out of 10 or or what type of person or would want to listen to this album would you recommend this to other people? oh yeah <laughs> um i i think most of the folks i hang out with would definitely be into this album I think if you like hard, well thought out, interesting rock and roll, this is for you. I, uh, hmm, geez, rating, eh? It's got that side B that I don't love. I'm going to give it an 8 out of 10, and that goes pretty much all to side A. Gotcha. What did, what did you think of it, Nathan? And Like, as an overall album? As an overall album? I, I, I'm going to give it an 8.5. I, I do ultimately agree kind of with what Dave says, although I do kind of love that Twilight. It's 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 a little um 
over the top, but the whole album, I mean, over the top is sort of the, the whole, uh, That's what I was going to say, isn't, isn't that it? rock and roll? <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of the whole point and opera, you know, whether it be space or rock, you know, is sort of, uh, grand gestures. And there are a ton of grand gestures on this. And I, I do agree though, that there's, there's not really an album, uh, without this first side. And this first side is the one that when I do eventually pick this up in album form, it will be for this. It will be for this side. Uh, but there's, I do think there's some good stuff on that second side. Um, not quite as strong in terms of this. Uh, but yeah, an 8.5, a solid. I think that it's a, it's kind of a must have if you are particularly a 70s mm-hmm. rock fan. I'm going to keep playing it until I've converted everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. To me, it's a 10. I... If anybody. If anybody out there listening has a vinyl copy they would like to sell me for less than sixty dollars, uh, reach me through uh, yeah, through that, this website. That's, <laughs> that's why I'm I'm stockpiling my Amazon box. I got a birthday yeah, new vinyl, like it's it's a hundred and eighty gram vinyl, brand new in Canada, sixty bucks before tax. Ouch! Yeah, yeah the uh, the what was it the fortieth no the forty fifth uh, anniversary of it they redid it all up and. You've got the liner notes and everything. To me, it's a 10 out of 10. I love it. Even the songs that people might not know necessarily, Tears and Lessons, they have a certain panache to them. I really like them. Something for Nothing finishes the album. I love that song. Something for Nothing. Just I can remember singing that to my dad when I was like 12. Like I love the song. <laughs> and, and even before you realize what drugs are you're singing about the fields of afghanistan <laughs> in a passage to bangkok <laughs> until you realize it's all about opium and so you're like wow <laughs> so i absolutely adore the album it's an album that if i'm feeling bad i play it if, and if i'm feeling good it makes me feel better if i'm working out or doing exercises i can play it i absolutely can play this album anytime and i will never ever tire of this album so the only last thing i'm gonna say is if you get the album and you look at the back side of the album you see some very bad fashion (laughs) you see you see the boys in kimonos what (laughs) kimonos and and if anybody out there wants to know what they're like go to when rush was nominated and elected into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2013, and the Foo Fighters came out and played the beginning of 2112. They all came out in kimonos. Really? They came out in kimonos. And the story behind it is the record producers or the record company threw a few bucks at them. And I guess they were in San Francisco. They were walking around in jeans and a Toronto Blue Jays t-shirt. They stopped by Chinatown. And they walked by, or the Asian section, I guess would be Japanese. Japanese walked by, saw them in the store window and said, hey, they look kind of neat. Let's wear them on the album. And that's where this came from. (laughs) So they're they're god awful. And they know that. And they never thought, they were not being fashion forward. They were being fashion backwards, actually. (laughs) It's it's worth picking up just for that. Fashionists. Fashionistas, kind of like the elders, right? So... But not fascist. not fascist. No, you cannot say they're fascist. So, I think if anybody has any comments about this album, please let us know. And as I said, if you have an album or a singer or a concept of behind the song, Bill will be sending a uh, a vinyl to each of the first twenty five uh, responders. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, on unfortunately, it's one of my forty uh, fives of something from Platinum Blonde. So I don't know if you'd want that. So. so- 
He'll send you pictures of Call in now to the Phantom Galaxy for your free 45 album. Last caller wins. From it's an album from KTEL. <laughs> Pre-scratched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so and all right, ladies and gentlemen. So and we've decided as this section of the podcast to transition to um, an, a movie, a horror or fantasy or a sci-fi movie that we think would make a nice accompaniment after listening to the album. And after throwing some ideas around, we kind of came upon 2015's The Devil's Candy. And The Devil's Candy was directed by Sean Byrne, who was really known for one other movie in the genre, The Loved Ones. I love The Loved Ones. It's a great, great uh, movie. It stars Ethan Embry, who was also in Empire Records, he was really good in late phases. He was in Sweet Home Alabama. And can't hardly wait. I wouldn't want to miss that one. <laughs> no, you can't. <laughs> it also has Sherry Appleby, who was in episodes of ER. She was also in Charlie Wilson's War. And a very, very strong performance by Pruitt Taylor Vince, who was also in, he's got a long curriculum vitae, but among the ones you might know is 13 Sins, I remember him most from Constantine. He was in a few episodes of The Walking Dead. He's continuing to work today. He's in a lot. Identity. Absolutely. And Jamie Tisdale is also in it, who was in From Dusk Till Dawn, the TV series. Uh, there's a, a decent cast starting it off. And what it's about is it's about an artist who's kind of scraping by. He isn't quite made it enough financially to just be an, a painter of his own desires. So at the beginning, he's painting butterflies for a bank, but that's nowhere near what he wants. And his wife and his daughter are looking to move and to upgrade their house. And they come to this house where it's been on the market for a while. It's underpriced. And as it turns out, as disclosed by law, by the realtor, two people have died in it. And it doesn't scare him. And he decides to buy. Now, when the movie opens, somebody has kind of gone off the rails and somebody gets pushed down the stairs. And those are the deaths that are revealed by the realtor in this house. And we know that it's a demonic possession type of film because a cross is knocked upside down and that's imprinted on the wall. And we kind of take a journey from there. Uh, and so Pruitt Taylor Vince plays the person who has killed somebody else in the house. And he has left. And the house has since been sold. But he finds a way of showing back up. And so Vince, uh, so the daughter of the painter is a rock and roller. And the reason this is connected i thought was a good idea was because it has a killer soundtrack an absolute killer soundtrack uh it opens with metallica's for whom the bell tolls and it closes with metallica's for whom the bell tolls you hear slayer you hear pantera you hear sonny O, you hear all kinds of musicians and she wants the daughter a gibson flying v guitar and taylor vince has a red flying v guitar and it's dark, it's scary, it's ominous, 
it's you're not it's a bit of a mystery it's a bit of a paranormal the movie is built on atmosphere in the unknown uh there's a extremely strong score not just with the heavy metal music but orchestrally i thought it was really strong yeah the music it, in this movie is kick-ass yeah there's there's a strong religious tone to it there's very strong baroque music to it it's a movie for your senses is how i put it a paranormal senses mystery movie and of the last 15 minutes i found extremely powerful where everything kind of comes to a head it's very cormanesque in the ending that's all i'm gonna say and i thought kiera glasgow was very strong as zoe nathan what did you think of this film oh i love this movie uh and this is I, the loved ones is a bit stronger content wise, just for anyone who's contemplating it. It's a it's kind of a dark comedy uh, over top of a horror movie that does get pretty intense at points. That's not to say the Devil's Candy doesn't get intense, but this one I like it almost more to like. I was getting the vibes of almost like a Stephen King story. Um, and one of the things that uh, Bill you didn't quite touch on a lot was. Yeah, that Embry is an artist, but he's also a big metalhead, and that's why his daughter is kind of a metalhead, too. And what I appreciate is, particularly early on, at the very beginning, you see Vince, at Taylor Pruitt, Vince, who is a great actor, and he's always really good at playing those kind of characters who are on the fringe. And sometimes they're, uh, they're, they're the character who might know what's going on, or they're the character who's the heavy. Uh, in fact, he's in a movie called The Heavy early on in 1995, where he played an overweight, like, uh, Fry Cuckoo, who was had a thing for the girl he worked with, the waitress at the restaurant he worked with, played by Liv Tyler. That's a movie that not many people have seen. I totally recommend it. He's very good in that. He's much more of a sympathetic character there than here. Although that's not to say there aren't some sympathetic vibes to him because you get early on that this guy is hearing voices and maybe those voices belong to the devil. And then you get that classic heavy metal cliche, right? That that rock is the is is the sort of uh, playground of the devil. And what I kind of really enjoy about this movie is Embry, who I didn't know was Ethan Embry when I was watching the movie because I watched it. Uh, this is at the point in time when I was I was actually doing the like professional critic gig, so I got a screener of this movie before I heard anyone else talking about it. And it took me a few minutes, probably about twenty minutes in, so I'm like, wait, that's Ethan Embry because he's he's ripped. He's got you know he's he's got the long like. He's got the long hair. He's got the beard. He's got the rock look. But there's a really wholesome energy to the relationship he has with his daughter. And like you said, she's doing a great job. Uh, and they're they're in his entire family. There, it's a healthy view of the heavy metal rocker. You've got uh, Vince at the beginning playing his flying V, and then someone dies, and he's that Devin Creeper view of almost what the '80s thought every heavy metal. <laughs> person was like and so i like the dichotomy because you have this this man who cares for his family he puts his family first uh but he loves he loves heavy metal music unabashedly so and i i really enjoy that about the movie there's also you do sense that something dark is sort of not just uh vince's character isn't just sort of honing in on them slowly by surely because they're now living in the house he used to live in with his family but something is happening to Jesse. That's the, that's the Embry character. And he's hearing these voices too. And I don't want to get into any real spoilers because I think people should really watch this movie. But what I think is interesting that Byron does with this story where it's sort of like, we assume that what's happening to Jesse is the same thing that has already happened to Vince. 
you realize that maybe they weren't hearing the same thing. And there is an element of, oh my gosh, is he going to do that? <laughs> but I want you to watch to figure out what the heck I'm talking about. Yeah, man. When the plastic bags start coming out, you're like, oh, <laughs> what, what did you think of this one, Dave? I loved it. I'm glad you brought it up. I This was a second viewing for me. I had seen it when it came out originally. And I, I picked up a lot more, so I'm glad I did give it a second shot. Uh, this movie, we're talking about heavy metal. This this is a heavy metal movie. Uh, the, the music is yes. correct. The look, this movie... There are scenes when uh, Embry, he starts he starts to feel what's going on. He starts he pulls out some spray cans and he's he's got his uh, breathing mask on and he's about to start painting. It looks like a tool video. It it, it is really heavy <laughs> it metal. Does. And what's going? I love the way it's filmed. This movie is so beautiful. The opening is super strong. The last ten minutes are super strong. This director has or the cinematographer is great. There's lots of wide shots. Of, of beautiful scenery and then uh, really creepy images. It, it's insane how this movie, there's a lot going on and actually very little going on, but it's all very tense because you don't know where it's going. And yeah, uh, Taylor Vince, he's creepy. He's sympathetic. He's a giant man. You're instantly scared of him. And I love how uh, you, you both mentioned the voices that both characters hear and the flying V it's like, he has to keep playing that flying V at 11 because it keeps the voices out. I, I thought that was great. And it's, it's Dane. They, everybody keeps asking him to stop. If they just let him play, they'd be safe. Yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. Like it's like in the gate when in that mood, that's the, the movie where they prove that, that the back mask <laughs> playing the record backwards saves the world instead of. Damn. Because there is one scene where the neighbors have obviously complained about his noise and the police officer says, I don't want to have to come back here. Do I? And then the Taylor Vince says, no. And he says, repeat after me. I will not play it that loud. And mm -hmm. he's almost sheepishly. He doesn't want to agree to that. No, it's, it's because he knows it'll happen. Yeah. And, and I love how there's a scene with Taylor Vince and the daughter where you learn what the title means. Like the devil's candy is, Oh yep. my God, that? Okay. Uh, I don't think it is the same voice they're hearing. The first painting that he paints is the cross. And then he, he's trying to get um, uh, a gallery owner, uh, his attention. And there's a, an intro. He's got, he's got this, this secretary that is the uh, go between. She's all dressed in red. So, you know, I mean, symbolically that's, Oh, there's something wrong there. Maybe he shouldn't be trying to get in with this art gallery and, even the 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 the, the dealer, oh, yeah. I don't know. There's something you know. He wants. He's all right with people making sacrifices for their art. He doesn't mind if uh, things go wrong. There's something creepy about him too, Tony Amendola. Yeah, and the uh, the, the end oh. of the movie. I'm not giving anything away, but for a split second, there's almost an Indiana Jones moment. I know what you're yeah, talking about. And you kind of feel like going. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the other thing is the art he actually comes up with is beautiful. I'd love those paintings in my basement. They would be great. But uh, they, they are not for everybody. Freaky. Yeah, I think, great, I think but the, freaky. the critic describe or the uh, art dealer, what is, I think he says, wonderfully disturbing, he calls the art. Wonderful. <laughs> that doesn't. Yes. Yeah, so uh, does anybody else have anything to say or to add that wasn't touched upon? 
One, just one quick thing I want to add for people who are fans of horror and kind of wondering about this, Dave, I think you said something that's really a, an, a good point, which was that the dark elements that are in this film are, are hinted at. You get the tension and suspense of them, but the movie is not like there are things I would almost now. This is not a movie I'm going to throw on for my seven and no, no, but I remember a few years back, uh, um, a niece of ours who was at that point about 13, 14, was really starting to get into horror movies. And, but also they freaked her out a little bit. They, they, they were over at the house and we sat down and we watched this one together. And it was almost like perfect for her because it's, and I think at that age, it's the, it's not a bad one if you're trying to get into horror because it isn't as strong. A lot of, a lot of things yeah. are implied and it's a movie with a lot of, of, of elements that I think are good for a younger horror fan. Now, again, I don't mean a kid, but somebody in their early teens who's getting into horror, I think this is right, right around the daughter's side, age. Probably, if you guys feel differently, yeah, yeah, exactly right. Like, um, it's creepy. It does get kind of intense. But if you're kind of watching it together, I don't think it ever goes quite so far. Again, it has that Stephen. And with some of the violence, there is some beautiful editing that you don't see yes. everything you think you see. No, no, and it never gets too intense. It's a, I'd say it's more unnervingly I, creepy but because of the way it's structured and what happens with it you kind of walk out of it um there is a, there, there's a feeling of you don't walk out necessarily feeling really freaked out or or gloomy no, i don't think the tone of the, the ending really gloomy. helps with that but i think the fact that yeah uh, i mean right from the start you get that <laughs> there's heavy metal involved it's a heavy metal movie uh, <laughs> maybe just yeah, and maybe that's on purpose to keep you on edge and then on purpose, yeah. it doesn't quite always go as far as you think it will because it's heavy metal. It should be bloody. It's it's not all that bloody either, really. It, yeah. it, it's it's no. restrained metal. But but then any like any good movie, there's a bit of interpretation left for the audience. Oh, like totally. they don't necess- they don't spoon spoon feed you anything in this. You have to kind of follow it along. Yeah, you don't actually get any answers, do you? Now that I think about not, it. Not really. The- not 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 in a in a, a completely literal sense because there is always the in some of these films, there's always the potential all the way back to the innocence. Uh, Bill and I've talked about this that there isn't any supernatural. He's crazy and the other guy got lucky. Yeah. And what would have happened if if Vince or not Vince, sorry, if Embry didn't get a flat tire? there's there's some bad isn't it like with a lot of horror movies there's that cliche well this one it was the tire blew out which happens you know from time to time you know the cell phone or goes or you can't get cell service and let me throw this out too i do think this is a movie that if you are more on the thriller end of, of 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 the spectrum than horror you know and you're listening to this and you prefer you like thrillers a little more or mysteries i think you'll still get I think you'd still really enjoy this movie. Don't let the horror tag uh, or even the heavy metal tag, you know, I I unabashedly love both of those things. But I think that this is a movie that has a, maybe a more mainstream swath than people maybe give it. Absolutely. You know, I think a fan of a thriller could really enjoy this and, and know that they're not in for a really hardcore. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I don't know if they, it's a couple years later. It's another heavy metal movie. Uh, it's with uh, Kieran Culkin. It's like a true story about a band, oh, the the Lords of um, Lords, Lords of Chaos. Chaos. Yeah. Now that is <laughs> messed up, and I wouldn't like that. That's, that's the metal. other heavy metal movie. <laughs> but 
that's not for wow. kids, and that does go there. Yeah, it does. Yeah. No, to be fair, neither of these are for kids, yeah. but that is not really a good gateway one for younger See, teens. Dave, I thought you were going Deathgasm route. Oh, you know, shamefully, I have not seen that yet. Oh, you got to see that. I but, know, I know. But to, but to Nathan's point, I agree because at certain points, it's almost a character study. It's the relationship between the father and the daughter, the relationship between the husband and the wife and the daughter and like the family dynamic. And at a certain point, the wife is like, should we do it? And should we not? And they're smoking a joint and she says, take a haul. And they have to decide to buy the house. And then as they get over there, like it's one where it's not, it's not a simple film. Well, it's straightforward. I guess that's the, the kind of Stephen King part I see is that these characters feel real and believable. Embry feels like a real person that you might know. And the way in which he deals with these things that are beyond our understanding and that are beyond his understanding, the way he deals with them feels real too. He doesn't, one of the things I've mentioned this to about anybody who asked me, one of my huge pet peeves as a, uh, as a critic and then, you know, even as a, as a, as a father, it's just how poorly dads are usually treated in films, you know, and horror yeah. films too, for that matter, where, you know, they never understand their kids. And if they learned how to understand the kid in movie one and movie two, they've forgotten again. And there's none of that in this movie. I mean, there are moments when Embry messes up mostly because of all this turmoil that's going on around him. That's beyond his understanding, but he deals with it. You see what would be an honest, interaction between a father and a daughter you know it doesn't feel like something three screenwriters who had bad childhoods tried to bang but would, would either um, of you consider Embry to be um, a sympathetic character is he a sympathetic type that you should be rooting for or is he one who kind of gets what he deserves no I think he's not just sympathetic I think he's admirable I mean I think he's a guy that the way he tries to handle this you imagine any one of us being in a situation I think he's a good dad. He's a good husband. He's a guy who, I mean, he's got flaws, but he's constantly struggling with it. And that's what makes this movie scary is you watch him possibly being pulled down this, this, uh, this rabbit hole being pulled into this force. And you don't want to see him succumb because you feel that he, he does not, you know, doesn't deserve it, but that you're hoping he can overcome it. I mean, that's how I felt. I felt he was, he's a guy I would love to hang out with when he's not being, you know, attacked by demons. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I thought he was pretty sympathetic too. There are a couple of moments, I think on purpose where the, again, the movie, it doesn't actually go where you think it will, but he starts to almost be unsympathetic. But by the time the movie is over and you know, everything that happened, uh, it's not yeah. his fault that he was, maybe late for something or uh, unavailable because there are, there are forces working against him. So I think ultimately he's sympathetic and certainly by that, you know, that last 10 minutes. Uh, yeah. He's, he's a good dad and husband. And I don't, and I don't think this is a big, big spoiler to mention what you said. There's a moment where he's late and, you know, and you have that interaction with the daughter, but those things I will say as someone who's, who, who just said, sometimes I don't think dads get a fair shake in the movies. Those things do happen when you're when you have kids, you know, and some of these things. But what I liked about it is he immediately, at least that's kind of, you know, my impression is he acquiesces that he's, you know, that he's kind of messed up. And it isn't this long history. It's like their relationship is healthy enough that they start dealing with that. Right. right it doesn't that. come off as something he does all the time. 
No, and that interaction, and he understands it, and he immediately, you know, and that's the thing, the difference between the image. You've got his kind of gnarly-looking guy, and he looks real hardcore, but he's a real, he's a softy, and he's going to put his heart out there for his kid. And, uh, I mean, I, to me, that's what made the movie were those sorts of things where they took something that could be cliche and they bothered to have the time for him to have that conversation and to demonstrate, hey, this is what it really looks like when these things happen, which makes the st- the fact that there's a guy wearing a crappy looking orange jumpsuit carrying around, you know, containers of gasoline at the edge of your property way more scary because everything feels so real. Yeah, this is a great movie to watch at the dark in the dark at night you know maybe you've had i'll tell you i was i did uh, you know it's not that busy where i work i was able to watch this on my phone in my car during <laughs> the day and it was creeping me out okay <laughs> perfect so if that can happen at two o'clock in the afternoon imagine 11 o'clock you've had a couple beers or you've had some other substances and you throw this on it, you can take it at many different levels. It could be a straight ahead horror, but it's got, it's like an onion. You peel it, you peel it, you peel it. You get so much more out of it. One of the other amazing things too, all of this, an hour, 20 minutes. Just to compare this last week, I watched Das Boot director's edition, three hours and a half. Christ. You can wa- you can watch three of these in that well, time. <laughs> Nathan, last time we spoke, you were about to watch the Snyder cut or something, right? That's got to be. Yes. You watch yes, this movie exactly. three times. <laughs> That's true. But yeah. And uh, even though they were trapped in a metal log, uh, a metal tube in the under the sea, uh, more things may have happened to Don. <laughs> <laughs> I think that the Snyder Cut was a big improvement over what they previously released uh, in the, the Justice League. So then I think we've pretty much exhausted all talk of this film. Uh, Dave, what would you give this out of 10? Oh, this is strong. This is uh, 8.5, 9 out of 10. I like this very much. Actually, the second viewing really bumped it up. Nathan, where would this go, putting your critic's hat on? Where would you give this? 8.5 for sure, like really strong. It was one of the top, I want to say, and if it wasn't, it should have been. I think this was in my top 10 horror the year that it came out, or the year that I saw it, because I don't know if I saw it in 2015. I think I might have not seen it till 2016, or maybe even 2017. I can't remember, because it, it kind of was in distribution hell for a little while there i didn't um, think it was that old either 2015 didn't sound right to me i think it was made and it, it was made not so long after the loved ones but then it hung around for a while and it was playing at festivals and things like that and i just think it took a real long uh, and then it just kind of got dumped uh that, that's the one thing i'll say great movie definitely seek it out if you haven't seen it i know that it's highly regarded by those who've seen it but it never i don't think it caught on the way i was hoping it would you know i don't hear it talked about a lot honestly yeah i i know that our good friend dave becker uh, the encyclopedia of movie knowledge the year that this came out this was his number one film wow in the horror genre i don't know if overall oh, okay. but but uh, the horror film it was his number one film and i i, I hearken to mention that it probably made his top 10 overalls like he, he really <laughs> loves this film i give this a strong nine i i think I, it's good i just uh I'm just looking at the IMDb here. So it's listed as 2015, but then I think the release date is 2017. And get this, IMDb gives it a paltry 6.4. That's wrong. Bill and I have had this. It's so funny, though. Bill and I have had this conversation, and I've been saying for a while um, that, who was it? 
they were oh um the guys who directed the endless uh justin benson and aaron moore had years ago i had them on the earlier incarnation of this show it was when they made their first movie and they said just always add three points to the imdb rating of a horror film and you'll get the real rating <laughs> yep. and we all came in on 8.5 8.5 and a nine and if you add your you're you're pretty much right on the on the mark Dang there on. yeah and i mean we could have a whole separate conversation as to the justification of IMDb ratings. So no. Yeah. And you, yeah, you still get nowhere. (laughs) And I was going to say, I smell a Dave Becker rant, but I don't want to go there tonight. So (laughs) actually I think we're probably finished with this film, but if anybody has any suggestions as to possible albums and movie combinations or just one that's a movie that you think has a strong musical message or just links in thematically with another movie or album, please suggest it to us because we all need help and we all want to hear from you and everybody gets together. So give us your feedback. We'd really appreciate that. Please send all DMs to Nathan Bartlebaugh. (laughs) But, um, I think that's probably it, gentlemen. Is there anything, Nathan, that I've forgotten or you wanted to mention? No, I will throw out there, and it, I mean, we could always cover it sometime on a future episode. Yeah, we're talking uh, Taylor Pruitt Vince, and we were talking kind of musical movies. He's in a movie I think is highly underrated. It's not the science fiction. It's not even really fantasy, but it has a magical realism feel to it. It's a movie called The Legend of 1900. Um, in it, he plays a saxophonist who tells a story about a guy named uh, about a character played by Tim Roth, who is born and grows up on a ship and becomes a like famous piano player. But it's a, it has a very mythic kind of quality to it. Uh, it's a really, really good movie. And it has a very strong musical current going through it. There's a scene where he actually squares off on the ship against Jelly Roll Morton. And they have a sort of piano showdown. That's kind of uh, kind See, of here. A- you are. You're suggesting this deep movie. I was just going to say bite. <laughs> bite. bite you mean suck sorry suck yeah suck that one yeah suck, bite, whatever. whatever i'm pretty sure there is a movie called bite as well <laughs> i'm sure there is there is a movie called bite but i couldn't figure out what the the <laughs> other connection oh, okay. right, 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 i know right, suck right. is about vampires and has alex bite. you're talking about about recommendations can i drop you guys one here before i go absolutely yeah yeah okay so uh it's not the most mainstream band but one of my favorite bands uh, they're from uh, New Hope, Pennsylvania. The band is called Ween. Yes, Ween. And in, oh, awesome! Great, you know them. I love the party. Uh, in '94, oh. they released which song? It's a uh, is is it your party or the party or something? Oh, my wife and I had the great yes, time at yes, your party. That's the one. Yeah, I love that one. <laughs> I, I I've got all their albums. Anyways, their album from 1994, Chocolate and Cheese. There is a song on it called Buenos Tardes Amigo, seven minutes seven seconds. I think it would fit this uh, show perfectly. It's uh, it's like a, a spaghetti western, uh, wonderful, surprising story all rolled into this seven minute song with the Ennio Morricone feel to it. Who does the score for the Legend of Nineteen Hundred? Tie it together. Morricone does. Yeah, he does. The- oh, does? Oh, really? oh, okay. I thought I was going to say I don't think Ween did that. No. Well, I was thinking I was like. <laughs> Why do I feel like I've talked to Dave about the Legend of 1900 before? And that's because we discussed it on the Morricone. Oh, very likely, yes. Absolutely wonderful. So I think with that, we want to thank Dave Waugh for coming on. Dave, where can people find you and where can they hear you? 
Uh, so if you like what I'm doing here, you can look for my podcast on Podbean for now on Podbean, hopefully other places soon. The Great Fright North. Also, uh, The Great Fright North on Instagram if you want to see what I'm up to. And you can reach me at thegreatfrightnorth at gmail.com if you want to as well. And Nathan, is there anything, any parting shots or words of wisdom you'd like to let the audience know about? Well, at some point we're supposed to be on The Great Fright North, right? Yes, there's a Leslie Nielsen episode, fingers crossed, coming. I can't wait for that. That I would love to have these two gentlemen on with me. I wrote a letter to Leslie Nielsen when I was like in the sixth grade or something. (laughs) You had to write letters to people you admired. I wrote one to Leslie Nielsen and one to John Candy. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. And I got a letter back from Candy. I wish wish you could find out where it was these days, but... That's awesome. And I'll bring my fart machine, Dave. That will be great. You, you simply must. The, the official <laughs> Leslie Nielsen fart machine, I hope. Uh, I, or I can just, you know, put my hand in my armpit and make some noises. It'll just, be great. Just eat some, eat some beans about an hour before you come on. It'll, <laughs> It'll all be good. He's got all those spoof movies, but he's got the horror films and he's got the science fiction. The, but legit horror films and legit science fiction movies, you know. Oh, yeah. I, I was, you know, one of the ones I had... There's a ton of them on Prime and Tubi, but if nobody has seen Day of the Animal, Day of the Animal, uh, I saw that a little while ago. Yeah, is he is he crazy scary in that or what? I didn't know he could be threatening in any way, but he really he's is. Had in a that threatening movie. creep show. I I guess I just uh, I don't know. I don't. I just <laughs> he's got the full on Frank Drebin look by that point. I get that. Yeah. But, um... Oh, uh, what else? He, yeah, in uh, Day of the Animal, when he takes his shirt off and it starts raining, and you're like, wow, <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> but then we, but then you can go from that to Robbie the Robot. So, I mean, he's all over the place. And right? to what was it called? <laughs> Naked Space or something like that? <laughs> the, oh, I haven't seen that. That was one. The other, the alternate title of that movie is The Monster Was Not Nice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a trauma movie. Uh, it's close. It's trauma okay. or trauma. It's, a, it's both. Trauma, yes, yes. It's a trauma after you've seen a trauma movie. Yeah. Well, we can't. We're having the episode right now, so we can't do that. We got to wait. So, um, okay. Yeah. So this was this was strange frequencies. Bill, this was so awesome. It was so much fun. I'm looking forward to uh, the next episode, and we'll we'll uh, put some information up as that comes along. We've got uh, we've got lots of cool stuff going on. Dave has been joining us for the X Files. We're on season two of that and uh, which is was so massive that we recorded the first half of the season and still have the second half to do but uh man it's so much fun going back isn't it to like check out those old episodes well i had a flashback when bill said uh you know you had four people on each talking about three i think what what happened is we didn't quite realize how into the show we were and we have Four people talking about three episodes each, plus the opener and the closer. Well, and then I had the genius idea of let's mention every episode and I'll just read the synopsis. And that's <laughs> not really how it worked out, was it? <laughs> no. And people have been really responding well to it. a lot of our series. The Illustrative Fan is doing awesome. And all of our episodes of Bill and I have uh, resurrecting Tubi Roulette or VOD Roulette. Yep. And soon, sometime, whether it's April or May, we are going to get Dave and greg bench back and going to do the bigfoot episode that we've been talking about since last summer oh geez wow cool and now that they have that show uh that hulu show called or it might be a movie i gotta check and see called sasquatch i think it's a movie it's a movie perfect i think it's a movie um 
And I have a feeling that at some point in the near future, we'll get the real talk, guys. But I don't even want to speculate what the topic will be. Yeah, yeah. And Tommy's over joining us right now for the, the X-Files. So, yeah, lots of good stuff and new stuff all the time. This was an absolute blast, ladies and gentlemen. If you like me, let me know. If you don't like me, please send them to Nathan Bartlebaugh. <laughs> because he is our administrative genius. I'm just the guy that gets to know people. So... That episode, that concludes this episode. This is the spot where your finger hits the button and the sound slowly fades away.